Welcome to Onco Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. Did you notice that? A little different. Uh, we've dropped the pod, just Onco Farm. Just like the Facebook had to drop the the. Uh, we're rebranded. We're just Onco Farm. And Onco Farm is brought to you by the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy, uh, who happens to be my employer. Um, and I'm recording this, as I have all other podcasts, from um, my. My office here at the College of Pharmacy in Mountain Home, Tennessee. Um, feel free to follow me at FarmDetanib or follow the podcast at OncoFarmPod on Twitter. Whole lot to get to today. Um, a lot of new stuff going on. So we're just going to get right into it. We got a new drug approved this week, apalutamide, approved uh, yesterday on Valentine's Day, February 14th, 2018. And the indication uh, approved is non-metastatic, non-metastatic, castrate-sensitive prostate cancer. And this is based on the results of the Spartan study, which we'll go into in a little bit of depth. So apalutamide is similar to enzalutamide. They have a little bit different indications right now. Uh, but apalutamide is a, a second-generation angiogen receptor antagonist. And the second-generation part of it means that it's less likely, it's harder for it to become uh an angiogen receptor agonist, which happens to things like bicalutamide as the as the castrate-resistant metastatic uh, prostate cancer advances, those second-generation antiandrogens um, become agonists because of mutations on the angiogen receptor in the cancer cells. So these work better, all right? Uh, so they, they block the binding of androgens to the angiogen receptor, preventing translocation of the angiogen receptor to the nucleus, and thereby preventing uh, a Binding to DNA and binding to DNA, and then the regulation of, of genes that that really drive prostate cancer. Because we're pharmacists and we need to know doses, the dose is 240 milligrams every day. Um, that is 60 milligram tablet as the dosage form. So four tablets equal one dose. So four 60 milligram tablets is a dose taken with or without food. No. Um, so no, no effects of food on absorption or PPIs, H2 receptor blockers. So uh, from, an from an administration standpoint, fairly straightforward to compare to, say, many of the tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Of course, this is taken along with androgen de deprivation therapy, whether it's uh, you know any kind of, of medical castration, so an LHRH or GNRH agonist or antagonist, or orchiectomy, so surgical castration. You've got to have the ADT at all times. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about the drug first, from what we we know from the PI. Then we'll get into the study, and I think talking about the drug first will help us maybe learn a bit more about uh, about the study. So it takes uh, interestingly from a PK standpoint four weeks to get to steady state. Although the half life at steady state is only three days, so if it's only three days, it should only take about two weeks to get to steady state. Well, it takes four weeks because this drug ca causes auto-induction. So it increases the metabolism of itself. And we'll see that that induction uh, uh, characteristic of this drug is going to cause uh, have a lot of drug interaction implications. Um, structurally, it's very similar to enzalutamide. Enzalutamide has four nitrogens in its uh, chemical formula, whereas apalutamide has five. If you look at the structures, that you can see the differences, but they are very similar. They both have active metabolites that have varying degrees of efficacy uh, between apalutamide and enzalutamide. Uh, apalutamide is metabolized by CYP2C8 and CYP3A4, and at steady state, 40% of its metabolism is due to CYP2C8 and 37% due to 3A4. So they both seem to be equally important in the metabolism of apalutamide. 
It is a, a strong 2C8. Uh, I'm sorry. Because it's metabolized by CYP2C8 and 3A4, strong uh, inhibitors of 2C8 or 3A4 increase the area under the curve of apalutamide by 50%. The, the PI does not come out and say to dose reduce by 50%, but that would be uh, the obvious thing to do if you're worried about apalutamide toxicity uh, while in the presence of, say, a, 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 a ketoconazole or a voriconazole, a potent 3A4 inhibitor. There are, whenever a new drug comes out, those are the things I, I look at first is how is it taken and then uh, what, are the, what are the drug interaction potentials and we'll talk more about that in depth. And then besides how do we use it and when do we use it, but what are the scary side effects I need to know about? And in a PI, that's going to be in the warnings and precautions section. And we got two for apalutamide. Falls and fractures and seizures. Uh, the falls and fractures is something I would not have guessed uh, about this drug. So in the, in the landmark Spartan study, which we'll talk about earlier, 16% of the patients had a fall on the apalutamide group versus 9% in the uh, placebo group. And these weren't associated with loss of consciousness or seizure. Um, so they tended to fall more. And I don't know why. I don't think they know why. There was also an increase in, in fractures. So 12% of the patients in apalutamide had fractures versus 7% in placebo. Um, and the PI says this, although the, the publication of, of the Spartan study doesn't, is that there was no routine testing of bone mineral density or, or use of bone modifying agents for these prostate cancer patients. So maybe that's something that we could prevent uh, with more aggressive screening uh, with DEXA scans and starting patients on treatment for osteoporosis or maybe even prevention of bone mineral decline in the first place. But that's an area for research going forward. And then the seizures... Not that common. 0.2% of patients had a seizure on apalutamide versus none in the placebo group. If you remember, the first time we heard about enzalutamide, we saw this like 0.8% seizure incidence um, from the first study. And you didn't seem to see as much of it, as low as that is, you didn't seem to see as much of it in other studies. Um, but it does seem to be that there's a, you know, a very, very low risk of seizure uh, with both of these drugs. Speaking of drugs... Aplutamide affects a lot of other drugs because it's a potent inducer. I, I, and I want to put this into some context. When I say a potent inducer, what does that mean? Uh, usually that means uh, to be a strong inducer uh, generally means that it's going to uh, increase the metabolism so much um, that the drug the, the, the drug that it is interacting with, the substrate of 3A4, for example, that the substrate of that drug or the, the area under the curve or drug exposure for that drug is going to go down by 50%. Drugs that come into that class that we routinely think of are carbamazepine, phenytoin, rifampin. Those are, you know, red flag drugs as far as inducers. So rifampin and midazolam, and this is from Backman JT et al. in Clinical uh, Pharmacology and Therapeutics, 1996, the January issue. Rifampin, what does it do to midazolam, which is our standard probe for 3A4 um, to measure does this drug affect the drugs metabolized by 3A4 because midazolam is, is uh, a 3A4 substrate. So the decrease in midazolam concentration kind, time curve, which is basically AUC, was decreased by 96% from 10.2 to 0.4 micrograms times um, minute divided by mils. All right, So 96% reduction in exposure to midazolam with rifampin. Enzalutamide decreases midazolam exposure, AUC, by 86%. That comes from Gibbons JA, Clinical Pharmacokinetics, October 2015. Apalutamide, and this is from the PI, 
decreases midazolam AUC by 92%. 92%, so it's a potent inducer. A lot of drug interaction concerns. Here are some three or four substrates that would, in theory, have their AUC decreased by about 96% if they were solely three or four substrates. A lot of our statins, so a torvastatin. Uh, most of the calcium channel blockers, docetaxel, which is the most active chemo drug we would use, although probably not with apalutamide. I certainly hope not. Uh, Ticagrelor, an antiplatelet drug. So, and again, prostate cancer patients are generally older men. They tend to have a lot of cardiovascular comorbidities. Wouldn't be surprising for them to be on dual antiplatelet therapy with aspirin and Ticagrelor, or to be on a high-intensity statin. And we're going to see some concerns there as well. It's a, tr it's a strong 2C19 inducer. Decreased the area in the curve of omeprazole by 85%. Um, those are two, that's 2C19. Other 2C19 substrates, voriconazole, most PPIs, citalopram. It's a weak 2C9 inducer. When I think of 2C9, I think of the S enantiomer of warfarin, the super, the strong enantiomer of warfarin. Decreases uh, AUC of the S enantiomer of warfarin by 46%. But you still got the R enantiomer, not quite as strong, but it's also metabolized by three or four, whose induction is also increased with, with apalutamide. So somebody on apalutamide, if they're on warfarin and starting warfarin, that INR is going to go down. And you're going to need to monitor it uh, more frequently and increase the dose more than likely. Uh, other 2C9 substrates, NSAIDs like ibuprofen. NSAIDs pretty good for bone pain. Prostate cancer patients tend to have a lot of bone pain, so. Don't be surprised if they don't work it well as, as at normal doses in patients on apalutamide. As well as sulfonylureas uh, for patients um, taking that for diabetes. It's also a weak P-glycoprotein uh, inducer, um, an inducer of UGT, uh, as well as breast cancer-resistant protein. And the PI tells us, because of rosuvastatin substrate for the breast cancer-resistance protein, that the AUC of rosuvastatin goes down by 41%. Rosuvastatin is also a minor substrate for 2C9, as well as 3,4. So again, you have an older man with prostate cancer who's on apalutamide, and they need a high-intensity statin. They need 40 or 80 of atorvastatin. That dose of atorvastatin is going to be, the AUC is going to be decreased, so you better do 80 milligrams of atorvastatin and hope you get the equivalent effect of a 40 milligram dose. And for rosuvastatin, that AUC is going to be decreased by 41%. Um, so that's going to have concerns and potentially put these men at increased risk for cardiovascular events, which is something that I think is worth looking into in our data from the Spartan study. Okay, well let's look at the Spartan study. This was uh, about 1,200 patients, randomized 2 to 1, uh, which means that we have about 800 in the uh, apalutamide group and 400 in the uh, the placebo group. Now, the placebo is not just placebo, right? Because they are also on androgen deprivation therapy or they had uh, surgical castration. So all patients uh, continue to receive ADT. And that's an important point if you're not used to treating patients with, with prostate cancers. As you change their treatment, you still keep that backbone of the LHRH or GN, GNRH uh, analog, whether it's Luprolide or Degerilix. Uh, as far as how do these patients look? Median age was 74 in both groups. Uh, the median time from diagnosis to enrollment in the study was eight years for both of these folks. Um, most of them had received a prostatectomy or radiation, and then the, their, their cancer came back locally years later. Uh, the median PSA doubling time was, was four and a half months, and that was the key inclusion criteria, is that these men had to be high risk 
for metastasis of their prostate cancer based on a PSA doubling time of less than 10 months. So somebody has a prostatectomy or, or say they have radiation of the prostate or whatever, and their PSA is two. The time it takes for it to go from two to four would be the doubling time. If it takes two years, that would not be considered high risk based on this study. If it happened within six months, that's considered high risk based on this study. 10% uh, of patients in each group received a bone agent, so denosumab or a bisphosphonate. 97% uh, of both groups had received a prior GNRH analog, as they termed it. And uh, almost three quarters, 73 and 72% respectively, had received a first generation androgen receptor antagonist like bicalutamide. The primary endpoint, and by the way, this was recently published uh, in the Angel Medicine uh, last week, January 8th. Uh, 2018 was the day it was published online. The primary endpoint is metastatic free survival. Um, in the in the same issue this week, um, there is it published online last week, but in this week's issue of the New England Journal of Medicine, there is a review article on metastatic breast cancer. And I know apalutamide's indication is non-metastatic, but still, there's a nice commentary in that article about metastasis free survival as an endpoint and how that can change over time as we. Uh, get better instruments to detect um, metastases. Uh, the harder you look for them, the, the, the more likely you are to find them and how that could change over time. So I'll refer you to that if you want a little bit more uh, uh, knowledge about that. So primary endpoint, um, metastatic free survival. The median time, the median metastatic free survival time, apalutamide 40.5 months, so three, more than three years, versus 16.4 months with placebo. So really, really big difference in metastatic free survival. So certainly a very active drug for these patients. That's a hazard ratio of 0.28 p-value, less than 0.001. Overall survival data, immature at this point. Uh, survival curves are almost uh, superimposed for overall survival up to about that 16-month mark, and then you start to see some separation. As far as adverse events, we've talked about the falls and fracture risk being greater, as well as that, that minute seizure risk. Um, most common side effects uh, that are in greater um, percentage versus placebo, 30% of patients had fatigue with apalutamide versus 21% with placebo. The biggest one, rash, at least in comparison to placebo, 24% of patients had rash with apalutamide uh, versus 5.5% with placebo. The uh, publication in the New England Journal of Medicine, if you go to the supplementary appendix, it describes how the rash was treated. Um, which could have either been uh, stopping treatment, which was happened in 2.4% of all patients, a dose reduction happened in 2.7% of patients, or a dose interruption, so stopping the drug and restarting it seems to have been the most common, happened in 6.8% in of patients taking the drug. Uh, hypothyroidism occurred in 8.1% of patients with apalutamide, only 2% with placebo. And again, the supplement in uh, to the Spartan study in uh, NEJM describes that uh, patients who were already taking levothyroxine, already on thyroid replacement, had to have their doses increased of levothyroxine. Um, this is a trend that, this is something, not a trend, this is something that we've seen with uh, imatinib. Um, patients already on levothyroxine need higher doses when they start imatinib. Uh, why that is, don't know. Um, there's, there's a random PK publication suggesting imatinib is an auto-inducer, uh, at least in GIST patients, so maybe it has something to do with induction of, you know, deiodinases and, and increases metabolism of, of uh, levothyroxine. Um, don't know. And, of course, we know that TKIs, especially things like sunitinib, serafinib, can also cause some hypo, 
thyroidism. But certainly something that should be watched, monitored, and uh, a good intervention for clinical pharmacists to make following those patients. Um, I want to talk about um, the potential implications of these drug interactions on patients taking aplutamide. Again, these are men uh, in their mid-70s, uh, you know, on average. And, uh, even the, even the healthiest of men in the mid-70s are going to have some cardiovascular complications. Uh, one concerning thing, despite the, the uh, apparent overwhelming efficacy of apalutamide, is the causes of death. Um, Ten patients died in the apalutamide group within a month of the last dose. That's 1.2% of all patients versus only one patient in placebo, which is 0.3%. Um, and seven of those 10 deaths were attributed to the drug, and they include acute MI, cardiorespiratory arrest, cerebral hemorrhage, um, myocardial infarction, which is, um, I'm sure that there's a reason that it is listed differently than acute myocardial infarction, um, a multiple organ dysfunction, pneumonia, prostate cancer, and sepsis. But you saw a couple MIs, and we've already talked about, um, you know, the effect of this drug at inducing um, the metabolism of drugs that are used to treat cardiovascular diseases, and makes you ask, hmm, makes you say, hmm, and ask some questions. Um, the protocol is also available in the supplementary appendix, and in the, at the time that this study uh, was initiated, the protocol did not say that it was an inducer. It said it may be an inducer and drug interactions may exist, so I wasn't involved in the study, so I don't know if, if these patients were screened or if measures were taken to ensure that there weren't drug interactions with other cardiovascular drugs. That's apalutamide. So if you remember one thing about apalutamide, it's drug interactions. If you remember a couple other things, I would remember rash is pretty common but doesn't seem to be a big deal. You can stop the drug and restart it. And the hypothyroidism is something to watch for. And uh, hopefully somebody, as these drugs start used, somebody's going to study. And if not, do it where, where you are if you have a lot of prostate cancer patients, is look at bone marrow density. And do we need to monitor that in these patients? Um, you know, there's a lot of... Uh, GU, genitourinary updates this week. Uh, so the FDA uh, updated the label for abiraterone acetate on February 7th. Um, so abiraterone first got, came on the market. And by the way, abiraterone is one of my, one of my favorite drug names to say, abiraterone. Uh, first approved in 2011. Now these were for patients who already had docetaxel. In 2012, it was approved for patients with metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer who had not yet received chemo. So it moved up from post-docetaxel to pre-docetaxel. And this approval is for metastatic castrate-sensitive patients, basically up front. So it's for those metastatic prostate cancer patients as opposed to apalutamide, which was non-metastatic. But, but newly, diagno newly diagnosed, or not newly diagnosed, but metastatic prostate cancer patients who had not yet progressed on androgen deprivation therapy. And this is from the Latitude study. And the primary endpoint was overall survival, which there was a statistically significant difference, uh, p-value less than 0.001. The three-year overall survival, 66% in the abiraterone group, 49% in placebo. That's a number needed to treat uh, of six. You got to treat six patients uh, to keep one of them alive three years later, which is a pretty small number needed to treat. Um, Okay, that's, that's kind of what we would have, would have expected from adiraterone. Here's what's unique about this update. The Latitude study only gave prednisone once a day. As some of you are going to be aware, adiraterone historically um, 
was always prescribed with prednisone, 5 milligrams BID. And it has to do with some complicated pharmacology uh, in the adrenal gland and how abradorin works by blocking CYP17, which is an enzyme responsible for making uh, androgens. So you block, and it, the, that enzyme has two steps. It's involved in multiple steps in the production of androgens. If you block basically those enzymes, you end up, uh, because of some negative feedback, uh, you end up with a really high uh, concentration of mineralocorticoid precursors, and that lead led to a lot of mineralocorticoid toxicity, like fluid retention, hypertension, and hypokalemia or low potassium. And uh, investigators found that if they supplemented with potassium, they could um, they could minimize that negative feedback by basically providing uh, exogenous cortisol, um, and it minimized the mineralocorticoid toxicity. There were still some, but not a, not a lot. For whatever reason, the latitude study, they did 5 milligrams daily. They don't describe why in the protocol that I could find. They don't describe why in the publication by Fizazi uh, and colleagues uh, from July 27, 2017 in the New England Journal of Medicine. But the PI now does just talk about the toxicity differences between taking prednisone 10 twice a day with abiraterone versus 5 milligrams daily. So the incidence of grade 3 or 4 hypokalemia if you were taking prednisone twice a day, which was the old way it was always done, it was 4%, and that is data from, from four different clinical trials. If you took prednisone once a day from the latitude study, it was 10%, so twice as much, a little bit more than that, grade three or worse, hypokalemia or low potassium. Uh, grade three or four, hypertension, taking prednisone twice a day, 2%. Taking prednisone once a day, that rate of hypertension is now 20% which seems really big, but we're doing something a little, um, uh, it's not quite on the level, and that's where we're doing intra-study comparisons. Um, so the placebo arm of the, the latitude study, where they only had prednisone once a day, 10% of those patients had grade three or four hypertension. So maybe those patients were more prone to hypertension. The authors of latitude say this apparent increase in mineralocorticoid toxicity could be because they took less prednisone, which is kind of what I think. Or it's because they took the drug long. They took abiraterone longer. Uh, I guess it's unclear right right now if uh, for these patients, uh, if you're taking it for for castrate sensitive uh, prostate cancer, should you do prednisone once a day? And if they have toxicity, should you increase to twice a day to blunt that uh, mineral corticoid effect? Um, so that's something that we'll see where practice goes with that. I would I would be inclined to increase the dose if they did have those trouble. Um, We've got all these updates in genitourinary cancers because ASCO-GU just happened uh, earlier this month. A couple other interesting tidbits. Uh, there was a publication, not a publication, there was a presentation of Exitinib, which is a VEGF, as well as some other targets, um, tyrosine kinase inhibitor, and pembrolizumab, a PD-1 monoclonal antibody. And there was a phase two study that showed a 73% res overall response rate in renal cell carcinoma, which is a pretty big response rate. So we'll be looking for those results later. By the way, the phase 1b portion of that study was just published in Lancet Oncology on February 10th. That's Atkins, um, MB, and colleagues. And then Emotion 151, which is a tezolizumab and bevacizumab, and that was compared to sunitinib, I believe, uh, that showed to be pretty effective. And I think we're going to see a lot of these immunotherapy, so PD-1, or in tezolizumab's case, PD-L1, a lot of this immunotherapy and VEGF targeting uh, these dual dual pathway approaches in, in, in renal cell carcinoma going forward. Last thing I want to say about uh, oncology pharmacy drugs, there was a publication in this uh, week's New England Journal of Medicine of edoxaban versus daltaparin 
for, um, for treatment of VTE in cancer. I am a warfarin apologist. I think warfarin is great. Of course, for cancer patients, I love low molecular, low molecular weight heparins based on what we know. Uh, so this is uh, RASCUB, GE, and colleagues. And again, it's uh, this month, this, this week's issue of New England Journal Medicine. This is called the Hokusai, Hokusai, the VTE. That's the name of the study. It was a doxban versus adultaparin. Uh, there's also um, the SELECT-D, which was a Both of these are randomized studies. We, we have a lot of these single-center retrospective studies of DOACs in cancer, which you can't really learn a whole lot from. So we have two randomized studies. This is the first one I've seen that's published. Uh, SELECT-D is another one that was presented at ASH uh, last December, and that was Rivaroxaban versus Daltaparin. Uh, Hokusai VTE, this current publication, uh, is 1,000 patients total, and the select date was 400 patients. Um, the general trend that you see in these studies uh, is that the, the, the DOAC, the direct oral anticoagulant, 10A inhibitors in these cases, may be a little bit more effective than low molecular weight heparin, but they have higher bleeding rates as well. Um, I, I want to point out, because this is important, because I'm afraid everyone's going to start doing a DOCSPAN for all these patients. This was a non-inferiority study compared to Daltaparin. The non-inferiority margin was 1.50, which, which seems crazy high to me for a non-inferiority margin. Um, usually, a, you know, a non-inferiority margin is going to be like 1.25, like 25%. You know, you say, oh, if the drug is not worth it, we know... If we have 95% certainty, the drug is not at, not at worst 25% worse than the other drug. We're okay with that. This was 50. This was 1.5. And the authors, this is what they say. I'm reading from the say now. The margin of 1.5 was chosen as the maximum difference that may be potentially clinically acceptable because of the unmet need for an alternative to parenteral low molecular weight heparin and the advantages of oral therapy. Uh, essentially, they're saying because it's easier to do oral anticoagulants that maybe it's okay that the drug is that we're less sure of how good it actually is compared to low molecular weight heparin, which is not something I'm okay with. Uh, but again, um, I guess I'm old school for being in the mid, my mid-30s. Um, and while I'm on it, we're going long. I'm just going to rant. Um, direct oral anticoagulants seem to be Move, we seem to be moving in the opposite direction with anticoagulation of personalized medicine. In cancer, we're trying to find the one unique drug and the one unique dose or combination of drugs for this person's cancer. Um, but in anticoagulation, we seem to be thinking, let's do one size fits all for a narrow therapeutic index drug. This just doesn't fit, you know? Warfarin, everyone's do dose is different. It changes all the time, and that's a, that's a burden, but it's very individualized. Anoxaparin is individualized to each patient's weight and their renal function. And it seems that uh, just hard squaring, um, using DOAX to treat cancer in these patients when we don't have uh, readily reversible, you know, agents readily reversible, or agents available to readily reverse the effects of their anticoagulation uh, when invariably things go wrong. And one thing noted in this adoxaban study was a higher rate of GI bleeds, especially in people with GI malignancies. Um, and, you know, a lot of those folks end up with blood clots. So that's this week's uh, episode of Oncofarm. Um, moving forward, if you're still with me, if you hung on for almost a half an hour here, moving forward, I'm going to try and do a, a couple mailbag episodes. So if you've got a question um, about something like, I, we've always done it this way, I don't know why, or why does 
Why do we do this thing with that drug? If you've got any question that you just you don't know the answer, you haven't been able to find it, or you just don't have the time to go look for it, you, you know, DM me on Twitter, email me, B-O-S-S-A-E-R-Bazaar at etsu.edu, or just tweet it with the hashtag uh, Ask Onquifarm. Um, and uh, I'll put the put the those together and answer them if you guys have questions that you're you're dying to know. Uh, so thanks for listening. I uh, hope you guys uh, enjoy the whole podcast. Hope you're listening to the whole thing, and uh, I will see you later down the road. Take care. Thank you.